In Israel, the people of God had and loved children. Now, that wasn't like the prevailing Roman culture where kids literally were throwaways at times, either sent into prostitution or into, into gladiatorial games. But God's people in Israel believed the Bible and they aspired to get married and to have kids, to have lots of kids. They believed that children were a blessing from the Lord. And uh, Evergreen, I think, I think that you're like that because you've been very busy. I think in the next eight months, 15 babies are scheduled to be delivered. 15 babies in the next eight months. I think that is very, very cool. We have said we love kids around here, and you have decided to produce more of them. This is a wonderful thing. I love being at Evergreen. This particular day, we discovered that there was a dad with a problem situation with kid. You see, it was tough to have children 2,000 years ago in Israel. In fact, in fact, over 50% of the babies didn't live to see their fifth birthday. Parents wouldn't even name their babies typically until they were a week old because so many of them died during the first seven days. Only 40% of a born, ba- a born babies would live to see their 20th birthday. So here's the odds parents would face. If you wanted to produce two adult children, you would have to birth five and bury three to have two. No wonder this man was desperate when he came to Jesus. It leads us to our story. He came out of the crowd and he shouts and he says, Teacher, I have to have you. Look at my son. This is my only son. We don't know his situation. We don't know if he had other kids and they had died. We don't know if he was married or widowed or divorced. We don't know if he and his wife had infertility issues. But we know that he had one child, a son, This is all that he had. And he came in desperation to Jesus. In a moment, we're going to read from Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 20 or 37. But I want you to notice, kind of like if you were going to do a movie, you would start out, first of all, with a storyboard and kind of see where this story starts and where it's going. Because I believe that every person here today you are going to find yourself someplace in this story. The story is 2,000 years old, but the story is our story too. You're going to find a desperate dad. You're going to find failing followers. You're going to find an annoyed leader. You're going to find a powerful action. And you're going to find, as every good story should end, with a final fix. Let's notice together. This great account, Luke's account, which of the three that are given is the briefest in in chapter 9, verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and it's destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Pause. Is that what you expected? I'm expecting Jesus to go mellow, right? 
to be nice and, oh, I feel you. Wow, we're going to make sense of that. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground. and In a convulsion, Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Whew. Tough story. Some puzzling stuff. Let's think first about the desperate dad. Imagine a boy. Assume that he's maybe in the third grade. He has a horrible, horrible condition. A demon has been assigned, assigned to plague him, physically attacking him. Now, I want you to remember in this story two profound things. Are you ready? God is good. Satan is bad. God is good. Satan is bad. I know. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's a lot tougher to work out for two major reasons. The first is some of us have been influenced by Eastern religious and worldview philosophy. And in Eastern worldview, the good and the bad are all together. The yin and the yang is there. And all of this is wrapped up together in a unified oneness called Big U Universe. And so we don't know how to separate the good and the bad. But probably most of us find ourselves in the other group, people who have had experiences in life, and we have not been able to describe those in terms of how could that happen if there is a God who is loving. And so we wonder about bad things happening and how involved God might be in those. Listen, this is, this is simple, but it's profound, and it's essential to understanding this story God is good and Satan is bad. God is always absolutely thoroughly good. Satan is always absolutely and thoroughly evil. Now there's a conflict between Satan and God. God who is the creator of all. Satan who is a created being. Satan who rebelled against God and took with him angels, now unholy angels called demons, and they came to declare war against God. And Satan came and whispered into the ear of our first parents, and they joined him in this rebellion against God in their sin. And now humankind has been aligned in this great conflict. And in this story, the battle going on between the, the kingdoms of heaven and hell is taking place in the body of a little boy. And is he ever being harassed and ravaged? He is being driven. In fact, I want you, if you're a dad or a granddad, to think about your son or a little grandchild. This boy he, we are told by Matthew's account, this demon, as he comes to attack him, would drive him into a fire to burn him, into water to drown him. Why? Because Satan is a murderer, Jesus tells us in John's gospel. He is evil. And he comes to harass this little guy. We can imagine that 
We hear that he was even rendered mute at times. Think about his father. He'd be afraid to go to work. His kid might be attacked during the day. He might be killed. Think about this father who on multiple occasions has literally reached into fires to bring out his son that's being burned, to reach into water, to bring out his drowning son, who when rendered mute could not even cry out for help. He's come that day in this crowd to hope to see Jesus and want deliverance. This boy has scars and burns and scabs on his body. No wonder this father cried out out of the hundreds, if not thousands of people that were there. He's the one person that got Jesus' attention. And he cries, teacher, you have to come see my son, he says. He's all I have. Some of you might find yourself in this story. See, maybe your life is one of oppression. Maybe you are harassed. Maybe stuff is thrown around. Maybe you wake up in sweats and tears at night. Maybe you are physically attacked. Here's what we learned from the story. The disciples learned the lesson. Religion won't take care of demonic forces and medication won't and meditation won't and treatments. And When it is a spiritual thing, it requires a spiritual solution. Now, here's the truth. Some of us have very physical kinds of situations. In fact, we have both a blessing and kind of a curse in our culture. Rewind with me 2,000 years again. Because there was very little accurate understanding about physiology, chemistry, and biology, anything that happened in the body that was uh, not understood, was assumed to have been caused by an external spiritual force. So the pendulum was way over on one side. Everything was demonic and spiritual. That was kind of the worldview. If I don't understand it, it's otherworldly. 2,000 years later, we are blessed to be in an environment where we understand things about chemistry and physiology and biology and hormones, and we understand so much about how God designed the human body that the pendulum can swing all the way to the other side where everything is physiological and nothing is spiritual. This story reaches with God's eternal truth through Scripture into the 21st century and says this, if it's a physical problem... We come to Jesus, the great physician and healer, and we often and appropriately as good stewards access the blessing of medical help and cure and and treatments because those cooperate with God's healing mercy. But he would also say to us in the 21st century, if it's demonic, no religious incantation and no diagnosis and no treatment, no medication, no therapy is going to help if it's a spiritual problem. The poor Havoc father came to Jesus and said, I don't know what's going on, but I know that you need to look at my son. And the only problem, the only solution to a spiritual problem is Jesus. Yeah. Maybe you find yourself here in this story. Maybe you found your life or the life of someone that you love harassed and harangued, and there's no explanation for it. But Jesus is the one who can bring that healing, that can bring that relief. Hmm. Maybe you're there in the story. Let's take a a look at the second sketch. The second group of folks are the failing followers, and uh, you'll be glad with me that we weren't there that day. This, This is not one of their top days. So here's the deal. Three of them are up on the mountain with Jesus. 
the transfiguration, that's all cool. Nine of them are down at the bottom. They've also already had some success doing this kind of stuff. This dad comes to them and says, hey, uh, I understand that you're a follower of Jesus. You've gone to the Jesus Demon Casting Out Institute. You have a demon casting out kind of a ministry thing here. And my son is all messed up. And I want you to come and, and help. want you guys to help me here. And they absolutely fail to do so. The dad is disappointed. They are disappointed. They are confused. And everybody is wondering, why didn't it work? Did God fail? No. So why did they fail? Well, that's the very question that these nine guys asked Jesus later. I think it's Matthew's gospel that tells us that when they got away from the crowd, they actually went into a house. And while they were in the house, they asked Jesus, why? Why were we not able to cast the demon out. And Jesus' response was very simple and pointed. Are you ready? You didn't pray about it. That was his response. Kind of like, oh, really? We should pray about this stuff? Ah, interesting. You didn't pray about it. That was it. Now, some folks came along later, later a few years later, and they put in the words, it's you have to pray and fast because they thought you needed to kind of add some extra juice to it, apparently. But as far as we know from the oldest, the oldest manuscripts, Jesus said, you didn't ask me. You didn't pray about it. That's why it didn't work. You see, it's kind of like an electrical device. It's not battery operated. It has to be plugged into an outlet. The electrical device is wonderful for what it's designed for. But unless it has electricity coming to it, it is absolutely lifeless and worthless. But when you plug that thing into the electrical outlet and there is a flow of energy there, all of a sudden it comes to life and it performs the way it was supposed to perform. That's these disciples. Of course, previously they had cast out demons and it had worked. Why? Because they'd been tied into the source. You see, you don't become a spiritual reservoir that fills up so that you can go out and do your thing and then come back a few days later and get filled up again. No. We are utterly dependent upon the source. Jesus said it clearly this way later in Scripture. Without me, you can do what? Nothing. That's what they're learning today. Oh, it wasn't being trained in a particular methodology or particular words or how to lay on hands or how to have an aggressive voice. or It's about being plugged in. If I'm plugged into the creator of all, Oh, he can take authority over his creation. But I, as a part of his creation, am not going to take authority over another part of his creation. He said, you guys thought you could go out because you'd taken a few courses on demon casting and you could function in my name without my power and authority? No, you didn't even ask me about it. That's why you failed Lesson learned for failing disciples. I never get good enough without him to do his stuff. Now, here's a great lesson for all of us. Every one of you have been disappointed by Christians in your life. All of us have. All of us have had failing disciples in our life, haven't we? We've come to them. We've had expectations of them. There are things that they even promised they might be able to help with. And we have been left disappointed, if not devastated, because they let us down in some way. All of us. All of us have been hurt by a church. If you've been around any at all very long, you have your own stories of how churches, how groups of people at least within a church have hurt you in some way. 
Listen, this is a way of life. Don't you see them here? Sincere followers of Jesus left their businesses, left their families for a period of time, out there risking their lives with this crazy rabbi guy that's wandering around, not knowing what they're going to eat if when. He takes them into storms. These are the most sincere people you will find in your life. And they let this man down. A lesson that we learn is that we are all failing followers. Jesus didn't fail, but the sincere people who followed him did. And I'm just encouraging you today that if you are nursing as a friend in your life a hurt and a wound because of some disappointment from some Christian person or persons or some church or churches in your life, would you follow the example of this father today? Move past your disappointment. It's real, but move toward wholeness as he did by saying, Jesus, you got to come fix this mess because your followers didn't. You've been there, haven't you? Yeah. I was approached uh, not long ago outside of a business here in town. I'm chuckling about it now. I didn't then. She had a few things to get off her chest when she saw me. And she let me know what a dirty, rotten, slob, mean, harsh, hard, I'm trying to use words that are appropriate to use in church on Sunday, kind of a person I was and pastor. And I did what you would do. Somebody just obviously decides that you are a rotten person and needs to get some things off the chest. I interviewed her. I just listened to her and I asked questions. And at the end, she's shaking, she's crying, she's... And at the end, I said to her what you would say. I said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that I have let you down in these ways. Your experience with me is tremendous pain and disappointment. And I am so sorry. I am. And uh, as we had a little less emotional conversation, I said, but can I, uh, can I ask you a couple of questions? I said, how are you and Jesus doing? Oh, me and Jesus, we're doing great. We're tight. I said, good for you. Don't let my failure ever get between you and Jesus because he'll never fail you. And then I said, can I ask another question? What church have you found to be a part of since you've left Evergreen? Oh, I haven't had a church. I said, oh, can I just, can I, can I ask you something? Can I just beg you? Don't let your experience with Evergreen keep you from participating in another part of God's family. I said, I know I have no credibility with you, so I'm not here to give advice. But if you did ask, I could just quickly, immediately just give you five great churches that I would encourage you to go check out. And there's many more as well. We all have our own little slice and our own little peculiarities and our own assignments, but don't let your disappointment with me or with Evergreen keep you from Jesus or keep you from being a part of this community of faith. Yeah. Failing disciples. Some of you find find yourself in that story. You have failed. You wonder why, or you have been failed failed. And the solution for both groups is the same. Run to Jesus. He'll never fail you. Which takes us to the third sketch in this story, which is an annoyed leader. (laughs) I tell you, when I'm reading through the text, 
I'm ready for Jesus to get all nice. You know, uh, I shouldn't say anything because I haven't seen the movie, but there's another new movie out about Jesus. And I understand from the reviews that I've read that it's absolutely wonderful. I'll probably see it, and it's probably wonderful. But I've also read in the reviews that Jesus is kind of mellow, kind of like a 60s stoner hippie. And, you know, uh, visual demonstrations of Jesus are always kind of like that. I mean, he always speaks in this kind of weird kind of a little voice, and he just kind of floats around and always has kind of this, you know, nice, silly grin on his face. And I'm all for that kind of Jesus. That's the kind of Jesus I like, especially if I've messed up. But that is not the Jesus that showed up in this story. I'm using annoyed as the word, but that's a very gentle word for what Jesus was doing that day. He comes down from the mountain where he has just committed himself further to head toward Jerusalem to die on a cross for the sin of the world and to rise back to life as the Savior of the world. And he comes down. There's a dad who lacks faith. There's disciples that didn't bother to check in with him. And he says, how long do I have to stay here and put up with you, faithless and perverse generation? Now, it's another one of the gospel writers that tell us what the dad responded. The dad says, whoa, whoa, I do believe I have some faith, but help me in my unbelief. (laughs) That may be the greatest prayer you'll ever pray. I believe, but man, do I have a pile of doubt. I have all kinds of stuff. I have all kinds of stuff that comes out of really robust science that I'm having a hard time reconciling with Scripture and a God of creation. I have, a, I have a lot of stuff that comes out of... I have a lot of... I have my own life experiences. I, I've tried this and that, and it didn't work. I have a lot of doubts. You're right there with the dad, folks. This is good news. It worked for him because he prayed a really smart and accurate prayer. Jesus, you're right. I am faithless and perverse. I am broken and twisted. I don't get it. I have doubts. I have fun. I have a little bit of faith. Help me in my unbelief. Now, Luke didn't record this, but another gospel writer did. Jesus said to him, oh, that's okay. You're doing okay. You're doing okay. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, jump into the sea, and it'll go. That's what he said to the dad. That's a good prayer. I believe, but I don't believe well enough. Help me. Well, how about the disciples that get called out? They're in front of a few hundred people. And, and this is not a good day to be a disciple. This is, this is not good. It's one thing for the boss to call you out as a positive example. Not them that day. Negative illustration. Jesus looks at them. Nine guys. There they are. The three guys behind him on the mountain. They weren't a part of it. They're slinking into the background. The nine guys are right there. Jesus just stands up and he says, you've got to be kidding me. You faithless and perverse generation of followers. How long do I have to put up with you? And, you know, Peter, who would never understand the nuance that that was a rhetorical question, probably actually answered. (laughs) Probably said, well, I hope you put up with us for a long, long time. That's what I'm hoping for. I don't know, but I'm hoping for that. Where does this come from? This annoyance, this anger that's rising here, this odd way of talking to a father who just came and said, help my kid. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32. In this gorgeous long poem that Moses writes and then he presents us his final speech to the nation, the generation of whom have followed him for 40 years in a desert because they were faithless and they were perverse and they weren't able to go into what God had promised for them. 
And Moses says to them, under God's anointing inspiration, you have been a faithless and perverse generation. You are broken and twisted in your sin and sickness. Hmm. But you see, that phrase wasn't just for a group of people in Moses' day or a group of people at the bottom of a mountain in Jesus' day. It's true of every generation. When God finished his creation, he said it was very what? Good. And the serpent slithered into the garden and whispered into Eve's ear. Did God really say that? Is he that good? He comes to whisper into your ear. If God were really good, he wouldn't have let that happen. If God were really good, he wouldn't let that thing continue. Yeah. And Jesus stands in the middle of this people as well intended as they were that were still broken and faithless and perverse. It has been true in every generation since our first human parents, when we sided by choice and be sided by nature to join in rebellion against God. In that beautiful, perfect place, there was no sin. There was no sickness. There was no suffering. There was no disease. There was no death. And Jesus, the perfect, righteous Son of God, came from heaven to earth in love because we needed to be rescued. And with that kind of passionate love that a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle feels when a little child kind of squirts off the sidewalk and runs into the traffic and without even thinking, you rush toward them and you grab them and you rescue them and you bring them back and your body is charged with hormones and chemicals and your, your heart is racing and all of that emotion at one hand feels like terror and it feels like fear of what might have happened and with strength you say to that child, this is why you have to stay on the sidewalk. You've got to hold my hand. That's what he was feeling that day. How long do I have to put up in this broken, sinless, sin-filled, horrific, stress-filled, painful, suffering place? I've come to change all that. That's what he's saying. No wonder he was annoyed. How long do I have to put up with this? I came to change this very kind of thing, is what he was saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Yeah. An annoyed leader, and he takes all of that irritation, and he spills it now over into the fourth frame of our storyboard, into powerful action. I'm going to read from Matthew's gospel. It says this. Jesus, notice these five verbs. It's hard to pack five verbs into a short sentence. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and gave him back to his father. You think Dr. Luke was excited when he was writing that? This is what compassion looks like. I want you to feel three emotions with me. The first is empathy. Empathy is when you know what another person is feeling. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus empathizes with us in our weakness. Some of you just need to grab onto that today. Because in your weakness, you think he leaves you. 
You think he's disgusted with you. You think he's fed up with you. You think when you engage again in that sexual addiction, that chemical addiction, that raging behavior, that unkind insensitivity, that profane way of living as well as speaking, that he's far from you. We have a great high priest that actually enters in with empathy to us in our weakness. Hmm. The second emotion I want you to feel is sympathy. Jesus also expresses that through the gospel. Sympathy is my feeling distressed because of another person's pain. You felt that. And we express sympathy this way. I feel so bad for you. But here's the amazing third emotion. It's compassion. The emotion most attributed by the gospel writers to Jesus. Compassion is very powerful. Compassion has the ability and the will to actually help. So here's the package deal. This is awesome. Jesus empathizes. I get you and sympathizes. I feel for you and is compassionate. And I'm going to reach into your situation and I am going to help it. Oh, man. And that's what he does for this boy and his father. The gospel writers, just three of them. You'll notice that compassion is always linked with a verb. It is an emotion that is acted on it. Matthew chapter 14 says, When Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Matthew 20, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they were healed, and they followed him. Mark 6, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. Compassion. He gets you. He feels for you. And he's moved to help you. God is good. Well, every good story finishes off with, with a good ending, at least if it's a movie that I like. I know some European films, they don't want it to end up nice and tidy. I like the good old frothy Hollywood, Hollywood formula. I like an end that's satisfying but has a twist in it. And the end of this story has both. Jesus gets alone now with his disciples, and he's telling them about the final fix that he's going to bring. Where is the hope in this story? Well, you're already depressed. It's not in the Father, as loving as he was. It's not in the disciples, as well-intended as they were. If hope is not in the Father and it's not in the followers, it must be in Jesus. We've learned in this story, as Jesus gets his disciples aside, and he says, I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen carefully. It was the second time. They still didn't get it. They wouldn't get it until after the cross. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Matthew gives us more detail than Luke. He says, I want you to listen. Here's the big fix. You know this boy today? This boy out of a crowd of hundreds? This boy that was harassed by a devil? And I healed his life. You know that boy today? That is the human condition of all of us. I want you to listen carefully. Because what I came to do is to live a perfect, sinless life. 
to die a death on a cross on behalf of all of the sin of all of the people of all of the world of all of time. And then, listen, he says, listen to me. On the third day, I am going to come back to life. That's the final fix. The big story is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where he would now set in motion the possibility of righting all of the wrongs, of dealing with Satan haranguing little boys and breaking fathers' hearts, in dealing with the physical consequences of brokenness and sin and disease, in dealing with all of our shared human common experience of sin and separation from God and forgiveness, through forgiveness, and would join us back into a relationship with God that was always intended. It could only happen if he went to Jerusalem and a cross and a resurrection. And that's the final fix. Here's the big story. When Jesus healed this little boy, he was describing your life and mine. He found us in a place where we were harassed and we were helpless and we were driven and we were without hope. And we were being burned and damaged and drowning and we didn't even know how to cry out for help. And we reached out for help toward people, even some of whom were sincere, but it was the wrong place because they failed us. And someday Jesus came to our life and we wanted to believe, but even then we had to say, I believe, but oh Lord, help my unbelief. And in the middle of that, he rebuked the demon and it left the boy. He reached down and healed him. He brought him by the arm and he lifted him back to his feet demonstrated that this boy, along with his father, who had been set aside by culture because it could only be interpreted that God was judging them, now was taking his rightful place in the community with restored relationships. And he gives the boy back to the father. That's your story. This is our Jesus. This is amazing. This is a good God. This is His plan for you. This is His love for you.